Chapter 14, Part 2 of U.S. Marine Operations in Korea, 1950-1953, Volume 2, The Inchon Seoul Operation, by Lynn Montross and Nicholas Canzona. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Drive to Weejumbu The Last Days of Inchon Seoul Operation the climax of the battle was witnessed by General Cates, who visited the front on 3 October, accompanied by Major Generals Edwin A. Pollock and Clayton C. Jerome. After being briefed at the Division CP by the G-1, G-2, G-3, and G-4, the Commandant inspected the positions of RCT-1 and RCT-5 by helicopter before taking a jeep tour along the road to Weejambu, to watch Colonel Litzenberg's men slug their way forward into the battered town. That evening the fighting virtually came to an end, for the 1st Marine Division had a total of only seven casualties during the last four days of the Inchon Seoul operation. The rifle regiments had only to maintain their blocking positions while patrolling to the front and flank. Operations on the Kumpo Peninsula, which had been sputtering intermittently ever since the occupation of the airfield, also drew to a close. Responsibility for the area having passed from Corps back to Division on 2 October, elements of the 187th Airborne RCT were relieved by Task Force Kumpo, consisting of the 3rd KMC Battalion, a detachment from the 1st Signal Battalion, and Battery C of the 50th AAA Battalion, U.S. Army. Naval gunfire had found its greatest mission of the exploitation phase in support of the widely assorted units which protected the left flank of Ten Corps at various times. The 187th, being short on artillery, had relied on the naval gunfire and spot teams commanded by Lieutenant J.G. Leo D. McMillan, U.S. Navy, and 1st Lieutenant J.E. Dolan of the 2nd Battalion, 7th Marines. These officers and their men remained with Task Force Kumpo after it relieved the 187th, but patrols reported no enemy contacts after 2 October. The chief activity on the peninsula was listening to the baseball games of the World Series, which came in clearly over the radios of the naval gunfire teams. As directed on 5 October by Operation Order 15-50, the last to be issued by the division in the Inchon Seoul operation, the major marine units were scheduled to close into staging areas in Incheon as follows. 5th Marines, 1800 on 5 October. 11th Marines, 1700 on 6 October. 1st Marines, prior to darkness, 6 October. 7th Marines, mid-afternoon, 7 October. KMC Regiment, prior to darkness, 7 October. An impressive ceremony was held on the 6th when the cemetery established by the Marines on the outskirts of Incheon was taken over by the United Nations. After an invocation by Chaplain R.M. Schweihart of the 1st Marine Division, General Allman made a few remarks and laid a wreath on the grave of an unknown soldier. Then General Smith, General Barr, and Colonel Lee performed the same ceremony over Marine, Army, and Rock Graves. Volleys were fired, taps were sounded, and the dedication ended with the national anthems of the United States and Korea. There could be no doubt, as the Marines prepared to mount out for a new amphibious operation, 
that the NKPA invaders had been knocked out of the war by the combined 10 Corps and 8th Army offensives. The Red Korean retreat had become a rout, and Marine staff officers considered it doubtful whether the enemy could hold the east coast port of Wonsan long enough to defend it against the proposed new Marine assault landing. It was apparent, in fact, that only the active intervention of Red China or the Soviet Union could save the North Korean People's Republic from imminent collapse. At this time, however, it did not seem likely that any such attempt would be made. And so it was that one of the most remarkable amphibious operations in Marine Corps annals came uneventfully to an end on 7 October 1950. Early in the morning, the Division CP displaced from Seoul to a housing area just north of ASCOM City. At 0935, in accordance with 10 Corps Operation Order 5, General Smith reported to Admiral Doyle, Com Fib Group 1, for duty as commander of the landing force for the proposed Wonsan assault. And at 1200, the Incheon Seoul operation passed into history when the last troops of the 7th Marines were relieved in the Weejambu area by elements of the 8th Army. Summaries and Conclusions At this stage, the men of the 1st Marine Division and 1st Marine Aircraft Wing were still too close to the operation to see it clearly in detail. If there was any one overwhelming impression they all had in common, it was a sense of the speed with which events had raced toward a climax. This was by no means an illusion. Hundreds of Marine reservists had watched baseball games or enjoyed picnics with their families on the 4th of July, never dreaming that shortly after Labor Day they would be scrambling out of landing boats to assault a flaming Asiatic seaport on the other side of the earth. Speed was an essential if the assault landing were to be completed on the prescribed D-Day. But there was no place for the proverbial haste that leads to waste. It had to be the speed of precision, an acceleration of men and events made possible by the amphibious know-how of a Navy Marine Corps team that had worked together throughout the Pacific operations of World War II. Sometimes this acceleration was so unobtrusive as to pass almost unnoticed. Shipping does not grow on trees, particularly the enormous amounts of shipping required for a major amphibious operation. Yet the U.S. Navy made it appear a simple and routine matter to assemble from all the seven seas an invasion fleet made up of craft ranging from cruisers to rowboats. The Marines, as the landing force, worked hand-in-hand -hand with the attack force commanded by Rear Admiral James H. Doyle, who had no superior in the world of 1950 as an amphibious specialist. From preliminary planning to final execution, Doyle and his staff officers of FIBGRU-1 supplied a precision which had much to do with the success of an operation holding so many potentialities of disaster. Looking back, some of the Marine participants could hardly recall a full night's sleep from 25 July 1950, the date of the order directing that the 1st Marine Division be brought up to full war strength, until 7 October 1950, when the operation came to a victorious end. From the mobilization at Camp Pendleton to the street fighting in Seoul, it was often necessary to utilize the hours of darkness ordinarily devoted to rest. At Kobe, for instance, there were so few copies of the plans for the Incheon landing that they were circulated on a 24-hour schedule for study by Marine officers who took turns. 
The acceleration of the 1st Marine Division in 64 days from a peacetime basis to the capture of Seoul has been summarized as follows. A. Expansion from a reduced peace strength, less the 1st Provisional Marine Brigade, to a reinforced war strength, less 1 RCT, was completed in a period of approximately 15 days. B. Administrative sea lift and movement of over 15,000 personnel, organic equipment, and partial resupply from San Diego to the Far East Command commenced in less than three weeks after expansion was ordered. C. Debarkation and unloading from administrative shipping and reembarkation and reloading at Kobe, Japan for the assault landing at Incheon were done in a period averaging about seven days per unit, two days of which were lost due to a heavy typhoon in the Kobe area. D. Completed planning and the issuance of the complete operation order for the amphibious landing at Incheon were accomplished 17 days after the receipt of the initial directive. E. The 1st Provisional Marine Brigade was disengaged from active combat with the enemy on the South Korean front at midnight on 5 September, moved to Pusan, and outloaded in combat shipping in less than seven days. F. A successful assault landing was executed at Incheon, Korea on 15 September under some of the most adverse landing conditions in the history of amphibious operations. G. The Force Beachhead Line approximately six miles from landing beaches was seized within 24 hours after the main landing on beaches Red and Blue. H. Kimpo Airfield, a primary objective of the operation in the 1st Marine Division's zone of action, was captured 50 hours and 35 minutes after H-hour, D-Day. I. The first assault crossing of the Han River, 400 yards wide at the crossing site, was executed by RCT-5, employing LVTs, DUKWs, and pontoon ferries, less than five days after landing at Incheon. J. The remainder of the division crossed the Han River without bridging, and after intense fighting completed the seizure of Seoul 12 days after landing at Incheon. K. The effectiveness of the Marine Air Ground Team and Close Air Support Doctrine were reaffirmed with outstanding success. L. The ability of Marine units to participate in extended land operations, provided additional transportation requirements are met during the emergency, was demonstrated in the Incheon Seoul operation. In any such summary, it is understood that credit for the accomplishments of the 1st Marine Division was shared by the 1st Marine Aircraft Wing. Two more days of fighting remain for the squadrons at Kimpo after the relief of the ground forces, since Marine Air operations covered the period from 7 September to 9 October 1950. Altogether, 2,774 combat sorties were flown by the five Marine squadrons during this 33-day period, most of them in close support of infantry units. Following are the totals. VMF 214, days in action, 16, combat sorties, 484. VMF 323, days in action, 22, combat sorties, 784. VMF 212, days in action, 19, combat sorties, 607. VMF 312, days in action, 10, combat sorties, 288. VMF N 542, 
Days in Action, 19. Combat Sorties, 573. Total Combat Sorties, 2,774. No enemy air operations of any significance were encountered, stated the TAC-10 Corps report. Some enemy anti-aircraft fire from light to moderate was encountered. Most of this AA fire was of small caliber. Eleven Marine planes, not counting VMO-6 aircraft, were shot down by NKPA ground forces. Six pilots and a crewman were killed in action and two pilots wounded. As an example of the types of missions, the 326 combat sorties flown by VMF-322 fell into these categories. Close air support, 163. Reconnaissance, 99. Rescue cover, 18. Deep support, 17. Helicopter escort, 8. Photo escort, 6. Combat air patrol, 6. Tactical air control, 4. Leaflet, 2. R4D Escort 2, Message Drop 2. In addition, the squadron was credited with 151 non-combat sorties. There could be no question that Marine Close Air Support had won the esteem of Army Infantry units. Generals Harris and Cushman were the recipients of many spontaneous comments of appreciation from individuals as well as formal endorsements. On the other hand, the Marines had cause to be grateful for the deep support and interdiction strikes provided by the naval fast carrier planes of JTF-7 in combination with the 5th Air Force, which was committed primarily to the support of the 8th Army in South Korea. During the first two weeks of September, JTF-7 had responsibility for the gradual isolation of the Incheon target area by means of air operations conducted as far as 150 miles north of the objective and 100 miles to the south. The air defense of our forces at sea and in the Incheon area and the air interdiction operations of the first five or six days of the landing, these were carried out largely by naval air effort under Commander JTF-7. Mutual assistance between JTF-7 and the 5th Air Force was provided for with coordination being achieved by the delineation of areas for each. VMO-6, under the control of the 1st Marine Division and administrative control of MAG-33, completed a total of 643 helicopter and OI flights in 515 hours. Of the 139 seriously wounded men evacuated by helicopter from the firing line, a large proportion owed their lives to the speed and ease with which they were transported to the hospital. The helicopters also were credited with 12 rescue missions of friendly pilots shot down behind the enemy lines. In the long run, of course, it took the coordinated efforts of ground, air, and sea forces to win the final victory in one of the most unusual and difficult amphibious operations of all time. And though this book is limited to an account of Marine activities primarily, the Marines who took part would be first to acknowledge how much the final victory owed to the efforts of other ground forces, the U.S. Army units, the KMC Regiment, and the ROC contingents. Many of these units, like the Marines, had been handicapped by a hasty buildup which allowed little or no time for special training and rehearsals. No greater feat of organization was recorded in 1950 than the creation of the new 7th Infantry Division from the bare bones of the old in only a few weeks. 
The Marines saw more of the 32nd Infantry than General Barr's other units, for it was this regiment which protected the right flank during critical periods of the advance on Seoul, while elements of the 187th Airborne RCT were responsible for the security of the left flank. The Army Artillery Units, Amphibian Tractor Troops, and AAA Companies also deserved their full share of credit for the victory. And though the Marines were not often in contact with the rocks, they realized how much these Allies had contributed, often under the most adverse circumstances. Naturally, the Marines felt a special interest in the KMC Regiment, which they had trained and equipped. The KMCs repaid this feeling by the valor with which they fought in every phase of the operation from the mopping up of Inchon to the battle for Seoul. The Inchon landing and its exploitation have been made the subject of a study by officers of the Marine Corps schools at Quantico, who summed up the overall effects as follows. A. The amphibious envelopment at Incheon produced a decisive threat to the North Korean forces which led directly to the rapid disintegration of their front on the Pusan perimeter. The 1st Marine Division was the landing force in this amphibious envelopment. B. It completed the dislocation of the enemy's entire logistical system by the capture of Seoul, which, together with the combat action of other UN forces, shattered the enemy in all of South Korea causing the complete rout of the North Korean forces. The 1st Marine Division played a principal role in the capture of Seoul. C. The successful completion of the campaign made available to UN forces the port facilities of Incheon and the extensive Seoul communications complex for carrying offensive action into North Korea. D. By the direct action of the 1st Marine Division, the enemy's potential was reduced by the capture of 4,692 POWs by inflicting 13,666 casualties on the enemy, by destroying 44 tanks, and by destroying or capturing much other material. In view of such far-reaching results, total casualties for the 1st Marine Division of 366 KIA, 49 DOW, 6 MIA, and 2,029 WIA cannot be considered excessive for an operation fraught with so many calculated risks. No man's life was given in vain, for the communist challenge to the free nations was met in Korea and the aggressors beaten so decisively that the world would soon have had peace except for the intervention of Red China. MacArthur's Report to United Nations Again, it is worthy to emphasize that the victory was not won by any one nation or any one branch of the military service. As far as this country is concerned, the Inchon Seoul operation was conducted jointly by the United States Army, Navy, Air Force, and Marine Corps. General Douglas MacArthur was spokesman for all of them late in September 1950, and these extracts from the 6th Report of the Commander-in-Chief, United Nations Command, to the Security Council of the United Nations. Events of the past two weeks have been decisive. The strategic concepts designed to win the war are rapidly proving their soundness through aggressive application by our ground, sea, and air forces. The seizure of the heart of the enemy's distributing system in the Seoul area has completely dislocated his logistical supply to his forces in South Korea and has quickly resulted in their disintegration. Caught between our northern and southern forces, 
both of which are completely self-sustaining because of our absolute air and naval supremacy. The enemy is thoroughly shattered through disruption of his logistical support and our combined combat activities. The prompt junction of our two forces is dramatically symbolic of this collapse. The obstacles to this wide envelopment were not only the enemy opposition, but also the natural obstacles of poor beaches fronted by miles of mudflats, a narrow channel, and an extraordinary tidal range of over 29 feet. The success demonstrated a complete mastery of the technique of amphibious warfare, clockwork coordination, and cooperation between the units and services participating. There was nothing noteworthy about the North Korean opposition, but there could have been. The potential was there. The North Koreans were proceeding with the construction of coastal fortifications, dug-in tanks and guns of all calibers, beach defenses, and mining operations. Had this development been delayed for as much as a month, the enemy would have been ready and the assault, if possible, would have been more costly to the United Nations forces. At no time, not even when the United Nations forces were fighting with their backs to the wall at Pusan, did the commander-in-chief ever have any doubts as to the outcome. It was fitting, therefore, that he should have summed up the results of the combined 8th Army and 10 Corps offensives in this conclusion written after the securing of Seoul. A successful frontal attack and envelopment has completely changed the tide of battle in South Korea. The backbone of the North Korean army has been broken, and their scattered forces are being liquidated or driven north with material losses in equipment and men captured. End of Chapter 14, Part 2 End of U.S. Marine Operations in Korea, 1950-1953 Volume 2, The Inchon Seoul Operation by Lynn Montross and Nicholas Canzona Read by Aaron Bennett